Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. My name is Raphael Rowe and my guest today is a man once described as an organised crime boss and one of Britain's most dangerous prisoners. He spent most of his prison sentences in secure units inside maximum security prisons. However, Stephen Gillen is no exception to the vast number of prisoners who turn their lives around after crime and punishment. But his story is a compelling testimony as to why we should never write people off because of their past. Stephen, welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. I've read your book, Fascinating Stuff, and and I was looking at your website just today, and you describe yourself uh, as a former crime boss. And we'll get into that in a minute. But how would you describe yourself today, the Stephen Gillen that is around today? Hi, hi, Raphael. Thanks, thanks for having me as well, and well done with your wonderful work. I love, I love the podcast. Today, I would describe myself as a humanitarian, a successful businessman with a lot of depth who has a colourful past. Really, you say colourful past is a lot more interesting than that. But what what are you doing today? What does a humanitarian businessman like you do today? I mean, what are you out there doing? I'm doing many things. I mean, as you know, I you know I grew up in Belfast up until the ages of nine in the Civil War. I see unbelievable atrocities there. I went through a care system in in the UK, very very traumatic, onto petty crime, organised crime. To twenty years as a Category A prisoner, you know, I was termed at the end of that as one of Britain's most dangerous prisoners. But I transformed my life. I mean, I faced many challenges, addiction, you know, all of this stuff. I'm 12 years clean now, so that's a succinct part of it. But I transformed my life. I went on to be an international, I'm awarded public speaker. I uh, I got a business degree. I done a lot of voluntary work for charity. I, you know, I really changed my life absolutely everything and um you know I went on to 
go back into prisons, you know, deliver workshops to many, many, many prisoners with master's degree, forensic psychologists, for instance, you know. So I'd done all uh, all that stuff in the early days. But I then went on through through business doing a lot of work. I got involved in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a shareholder in a, uh, with a very innovative product that was in the open wound industry that was saving hundreds if not thousands of lives and you know through that I got into the humanitarian arena and I had the great privilege of being last year nominated for the Sunak International Peace Prize that was an unbelievable privilege you know it really is there's only a thousand people in the world who can nominate someone for that it's very prestigious with a million dollars for the two winners, for instance, there are two two winners, and they get half a million dollars each. Presidents have won it and stuff like that. It was an unbelievable honor, even to be even to be put in that shortlist. I uh, am an awarded peace ambassador, and because of my work and my development as a human being, Raphael, I've just gone on and I've learned, and I've you know I've repopulated my life with wonderful people, and you know I've learned a lot that continues so this is where i've got into the humanitarian philanthropic area and we're just about to launch the stephen gillen foundation uh next year in the new year so this is this is where we're going such positive positive words but let's go back to where he started you say it it, it all started when you were growing up in in belfast during the, the civil troubles there um what were you like as, as a young man and why did you end up in the care system and how did that impact on, on who you become as a teenager? I, I was born in this country, but I was taken over to Belfast, where my family come from, at age six months. You know, this is back in the early, early 70s when, you know, the conflict there was really hitting it. My family, my mother left me there with aunts and uncles and come back to England to try and forge a life because of the times. So I stayed there until I was nine, you know, through that. And um, my surrogate mother died then. So at nine, um, uh, I that was one of the drivers that brought me back to England as, you know, as well as the trouble. And I, I, you know, I ended up in fosters homes is the, is, the, is the easy answer. And, you know, I was an anxious child and it was very tough for me because I was, you know, I was very lonely at that point and I was in a very alien place. Of course, I spoke funny. I was different. So I was cast adrift, really, you know, as a child. I had to fend for myself in many ways from that point. So I, you know, I ended up, my way was to rebel for that. This was my defence. And, you know, of course, you look for other groups of, you know, a family at that point, you know, and the people around me then was 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 the same as me. You know, there was cast adrift. They was lost souls, really. So, um, you know, I, I started getting into trouble. I was put in the care system. It was very brutal. And that was that period. What, what was the first bit of trouble you found yourself getting into? Silly things, Raphael. You know, it was more as a child, you know, that kind of excitement. It's it's strange because if you think about the environment in Belfast and how crazy that was with the riots and the this is an everyday thing that is there, you know, at that time. It's not a normal environment. were you witnessing were you witnessing things happening or was it just around you and you were conscious of it because of the 
the dangers? I was, it was always happening around me. I mean, in the book, it says, you know, someone was shot in front of me, calling for his mother. I mean, this was very traumatic. I was seven then, you know. Uh, he was there for 20 minutes. We was there, stuck there while he died, calling for his mother. You know, you imagine something like that for a seven-year-old. is just absolutely terrifying, you know, and traumatic. And there were many other things as well, but that was that was very traumatic. So as as human beings, we carry this stuff, you know, there's no other way to say it, but we have to live, we have to go forward regardless, and we have to survive. So, you know, put all the uncertainty and my surrogate mother dying on top of that. I was really out at sea without a paddle. So it was survival at that point. So I I gravitated towards, as any child would, kind of strength, stupidity, other children who was doing the same kind of nonsense. And, of course, I really got involved in that early. And to me, England really at that point was, you know, even though it was London or whatever, it was very calm, obviously, compared to Belfast, in the middle of Belfast, of a war zone. So I always seemed to do much more than everyone else, and it didn't faze me. So I, but stupid things at that point, petty things, but, you know. What was that incident that you witnessed as a seven-year-old? Did that trigger a, a violent tendency in you because you'd witnessed lots of violence around you? I mean, how did it manifest itself into who you were as a teenager? People ask, Raphael, you know, and there are so many interviews out there about this, they ask for the epiphany, they ask for the eureka moment and all this. The truth is much more simple, you know, than that. In that I was really sheltered as a child. I had really good instruction. It was when I come to England, really, I was cast adrift and things started to go wrong. And fast forward of going onto this blazing trail, you know, ending up with being labelled as one of, Britain's most dangerous men, prisoners on this journey. But really when I come all the way through that, you know, and I had the transformation, you know, some 12 years now, you know, of doing good work, what it was was I just had the opportunity and the circumstance and the courage to find my way back to myself. But before you did that, what was it that that landed you your first conviction and imprisonment? I mean, how old was you when you first had a run-in with the police and ended up going to prison? I was a one-man cry of wave is the easy, the easy answer. It come to that very, very quickly. It was about uh, the first time I got arrested was around 11, you know, and it was running away from the homes, Raphael. It was so brutal in there what they was doing to us. We'd run away and come back to London do stupid things, nick cars, stupid things, steal from shops to, you know, to eat mainly, you know, and uh, just lost kids. Of course, that wouldn't last too long and they'd bring us back and, you know, and then we'd run away again, you know. So this quickly turned into, a, uh, you know, a crime wave of, you know, a circle, you know, uh, you know, a circle of this, of uh, jotting up loads of, thefts and criminal damage and uh, car chases and stupid things, but was was a real problem for the authorities to the point that I can remember that I went to court. I was, you know, I was under this care order until I was 16 by the, by the local authority, but they took me to court when I was 13-something, and I was so bad they said, look, you know, they uh, put, put the court date off until after my 
fourteenth birthday, so they could send me to a detention center because that was the lowest age that you could you could be put away. Uh, right? Can you, can you remember what what you were thinking as a, as a as a sort of fourteen year old caught up in the system? I used to feel everything, Raphael. I was a very normal teenager in the fact, you know, I used to get very, have a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, just like anyone else. I certainly had a hardness and resilience in me that was different, already different at that point. But it was more having to survive and having to protect myself from absolutely everything around me than being a brazen disregard for everything i wasn't certainly at that point then and did you have to build a reputation to get to that point there was no reputation before that obviously but as soon as we hit prison having a reputation and survival becomes something very very immediate doesn't have to though does it because sometimes and you know and i know lots of people end up going to prison and they sort of you know, fall into the shadows. You either make yourself known because you want to, you say survive. It's not always about survival, is it? Sometimes it's about making sure you've got what you need in there when no one else is providing it for you. And why did you take the latter? I mean, the the, the option where you built a reputation in prison. But before you, you go into that detail, you know, how many prison sentences did you did you serve? I, I served a few. I mean, I served, you know, I forget exactly what it was, but, you know, you're talking um, 20 years behind the door, give or take. I mean, the longest sentence I'd done was the big one, you know, that was that was 17, and that was 11 years and nine months, and I was released as a cat A on that. I'd done every day of it as a, as a, as a you know, a high-risk cat A prisoner. How old was you then? I, I, I got this when I was 23, you know, I was an ambush by the police, it was flying squad, there were shots fired, you know, they said I fired shots at police, it was proved to be accidental at the Old Bailey, it was very serious, um, we went to trial, when not guilty, um, we got 62 years all in all, but it was concurrence and all this stuff, and yeah, I served 11 years, nine months out of that, you know, I come out early 30s on that. What was that for? What did you get that for? Guns Arm and... robbery. Arm robbery and uh, fire, firearms with intent to endanger life, firearms to commit an indictable effect, loads of firearms charges and attempted robberies, hijacking, stuff like that. I suppose people will find it difficult to get their head around the fact that as a 23-year-old you were sort of using weapons like guns and committing armed robberies. And I take it this was probably in the early 80s? Yes. So I think people would find it quite difficult to get their head around the type of person that would would do that. What type of person were you at that stage? I'm always honest on these interviews because this is how we solve the problems, you know, and the truth is king, really. You know, and you're talking about I, you know, was a normal child who went through a lot of trauma. It was propelled into a lot. I'm not excusing anything. I'm just giving you the chronological journey of it. But then I started to go in prison. I had to really harden up. But there was something, you know, obviously my nature, you know, and I mean, you're very right about there are prisoners and there's prisoners. A lot kind of melt into the background or walk on eggshells through it or whatever. And then you get the other ones, they fall forward and they step forward, you know, and that never goes well. You know, it's always a lot of block, fighting, violence or worse, right? I was one of the 
the letter, you know, who stepped forward, because I started to get a real anger in me, uh, Raphael, that started then around this time. I started to go, you know, from coming from Ireland, I started to get a real anger that, 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 that just forced itself in me, you know, and then all the elements of like the anger, of rejection, of um, fear, you know, of all the stuff I was having to deal with shaped me very, very quickly into into something that I wasn't. I mean, you know, if we go forward a little bit, when I was walking uh, the landings in, in, in dispersal prisons as a cat A towards the end of this darkness, you know, I could not see a future in front of me. I, I, I was, you know, I'd done years and years in units, special units, prisons within prisons, segregation i'd done about four four years in the block complete complete isolation the violence the fighting the gangs all of this stuff and i felt as if every bit of emotion had been sucked out of me like i was the walking dead in a way i call it the seven levels of hell but this was a process so if we go back you know to that anger the anger kept me going right the way through this, but it turned me into a nasty character. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I was very lost. You know, and one of the problems with me was now looking back in hindsight was the people, places and things around me, the influences, because they groom you, you know, and I was indoctrinated and the people I was around, you know, there's very criminal, serious criminal, criminal families. They was the older lot, you know, it was all robbing security vans and really serious criminals' faces, you know, and, you know, I was under their radar and, of course, I was different. But, you know, it works very well for these people to groom certain people, uh, you know, along the way, you know, because and I, you know, of course, was susceptible to that in every way. But I made my choices, you know, and I really, you know, I really played that role. But, you know, there it is. I'm just giving you the other elements that was present. It's so interesting. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on here because I think for people to understand what it's really like from someone who's lived that experience, the, the, the one thing that jumps out at me, and I've met lots of these, I say these types of individuals like you, Stephen, during my time in prison and on the outside, but when people describe former crime bosses, you know, organised crime, people have this particular image of who that person is and what that person does you know at the top of the pyramid and it doesn't always have to be the person at the top of the pyramid to get labeled the former crime boss that sometimes just serves the police purpose in a courthouse to make sure you get the longest possible sentence they can serve how would you describe yourself when people were calling you a former crime boss organized crime is that the picture that you had of yourself or just the picture people painted of Stephen? I was always a leader in a sense, Raphael. You know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the plan B. You know, I was very much in the middle of it. You know, more a leader than a follower, more an instigator than a, you know, if you, you know, to put it mildly. But look, you know, the fact is that, you know, there are always people bigger than you or it's, it's, you know, it's just a matter of what people, you know, and people have a, you know, they shape this, you know, you know, in some certain way. But the very nature of criminality, you know, an organised crime is it's very hidden in groups. So if you're talking about the leader of a gang that was doing serious stuff, certainly that would fit. If you're talking about this 
top of the pyramid, this and that. You know, I certainly wasn't at the bottom of it, but I don't put myself, you know, at the very top of it. I mean, it doesn't matter, does it, really? You know, that life is that life. You know, it's 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 wrong. You know, we go into it for all different kinds of reasons. It's no good can ever come of it. You know, I, you know, it was an unbelievable, a painful journey for me, not just for me, but for the people who, you know, certainly was in my journey all the way through. That's a fact, right? You know, another fact is I'm very lucky to be here. Another fact is it's it's a waste of life, you know. Another fact is that we used to say there's only three roads, you know, that's prison, madness or death, really. And I've, you know, not there are so many people who I can, you know, who I've certainly known and been close to and some are dead, many are still alive doesn't matter some are in prison for the rest of their lives and they'll never come out again but um no good comes from this life really that's the bottom line yeah i i totally agree and i hear you and i think some people um they love the myth but they don't really understand the the reality and if you were out there committing violent armed robberies to to earn money did you benefit from uh, and i i ask this lightly because i know who you are today as opposed to who you was when you were out there committing violent crime but did you benefit from the crimes that you committed so that you could say well i i hesitate to say it was worth it but at least what you were doing was serving its purpose i would say succinctly no absolutely not i mean by the very nature of this life there's lots of money coming through your hands. Money is an energy, as we know, but the very nature of how this money is, is you never keep it anyway. But look, I'll prove it to you. You know, I mean, today I we work very hard, you know, very honest. And look, you know, we do unbelievable things today, right? But um, when you're, t- look, you know, imagine, let's say you even went out, you know, and you, you know, you was lucky enough to take, I don't know, half a million pounds, let's just say for argument's sake, on a non-robbery, yeah, on a non-robbery. If you go to prison for 11 years and nine months like I did, do the maths. It's, it's pennies. It's ridiculous to suggest, you know, that you would trade even a part of your life for money like that and go through that. So how can there be any benefit to it? I mean, I've seen people with real, real money, real drugs people. There are many, many cases out there. We're talking multi-millions, and they're very happy to give all of it back, not even to do a couple of years extra. And why should they? So there's the proof of it. Absolutely. You talked about being a an A-man, an A-category prisoner. I myself was an A-category prisoner, so I know what that, that experience is like. You talked about being in prisons within a prison. I remember at 20 years old going to Brixton's prison within a prison, the secure unit there. That's where I started. My, my prison sentence is something I didn't do. So that was horrendous. But for those who don't know what an A-man is, I've tried explaining this to people, you know, the book, the dog, the escorts, the, it, you, you know, and the big A on the door and, uh, and looking at the other man who has the double A or the E. How would you describe it? It's about observation. You know, it's about control. And it is a, you know, you are a different kind of prison. You're not a general prison prisoner in the prison population. You know that the books there, the blue books there with the big A and the photo, 
so they transport you like a parcel, you know, and they know absolutely where you are at any given time, all the time. But, you know, if you go to their definition, the Home Office's definition, it's very clear. It's the Category A prisoner is a is highly dangerous to the public, the police, or the security of the state, and their escape must be made impossible. So it's really about security at that point when you're when you're a Category A. And the prisons within the prisons, and I know that you went to many um, and and experienced some horrendous um, scenarios. Just just give me a couple of examples of what a prison within a prison is like, as opposed to you mentioned earlier, walking the landings of the sort of general population. It's a paradox in a way, because I must say that for me, there were times it was better in the sense you're with a certain type of person who has the same burdens as you, you know. I mean, the truth is I cope, and I'm sure we all do very badly with something like that. We put a great face on it, but there are certain things that are very much harder. I mean, it's quite hard to be around someone who's doing two mums. It's a different world. So you're kind of, there's a kind of brotherhood, elite kind of element of, which you would know, Raphael, involved in this, which is a, a kind of a help in a way because you forge uh, supportive friendships like that that are, that are really valuable in getting you through it, like a soldier would in the trenches because everyone has to get through this unbelievable adversity. So that's one good thing. And what they tend to do is even though you, 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 they really crush you with the security implications that they put on you, that is in some cases – they certainly respect you more and leave you alone more. That's another That's another upside to it. It's, you know, they leave you alone more, right? And um, that's it. But it's claustrophobic and it's, it's very unnatural and it, it's not good for the mind. And the other part of it is that when violence happens or fallouts happen within these groups, then they are very, very extremely serious. And where you're in everyone's pocket all the time in these little units, tempers can really flare over the most stupidest things, Raphael. You know that, right? What about the psychological effects it has? You know, when, you, when you're when you sort of confined in such a... You're already in prison. That in itself is a burden, as you rightly say. But then being confined in an even smaller space with a group of highly dangerous prisons who are labelled amen, whether they are or aren't, is another issue. But what does it do to you psychologically when you're confined in a prison within a prison? And please define to me what a prison within a prison is. And we're talking about some of the places like Wood Hill and, and, and other places where... Harland, uh, yeah. Brixton, yeah. you know, you was there. I mean, look, you know, in Brixton, you've got the, you know, the sliding doors, which is the sterile area, we used to call it, remember? And you'd go in there and sterile clothing and searching going in, searching going out, anything that moves. And, of course, we was on the top then, on the top landing, you know, the hot plate was on the bottom. I should think that would still be the same. Whether they changed the ones and the twos, you had the 43s on the twos then and we was on the top. But you have the central locking on the doors there as well. After they lock the doors, then there's a set. I'd never seen that anywhere before. I mean, that was – I was there just before they'd finished building Belmarsh. So that was the most secure unit in the country, apart from probably in them days Leicester, right? You know, the submarine, as they called it. So you're, you know, you're in a very, very tight, small 
secure prison within another really high security prison. So you're certainly no one sees you or no one, you hardly leave there unless it's to go to the hospital or the dentist is my experience. You know, you, uh, you know, you have your visits, you have everything on there. Even your visitors don't go to the normal visit hall, but you know, they're brought usually in vans and they're took separately into the prison to go into the other prison. Right. And everything is watched. Everything is bugged, as you know. Everything is logged. You know, there's observation for absolutely everything, you know, for a cat. Even your moods, who you're talking to, they really they really do the number. Over a period of time, this is very crushing on the psyche. When, when people like me are asked the same questions and I'm asking you these questions, you kind of project yourself back into that environment. You can almost smell it. You can almost see the experience you went through. Do you feel that now, Stephen, as we're talking about it? Because I can see your eyes and I can see your facial expression sort of reflecting and remembering. How does it feel? Raphael, look, you know, it transports me straight back there. And the first thing I get is that Spartan kind of stainless steel kind of old washed hospital smell right and i'm there but look the truth is you know and this isn't exclusive in a way where you know we're this would be in the film but it's not i don't really talk about this in interviews but i get a lot of images like this that even come in now really bad images now i yeah and it's crazy they can come at any time that you know it's just you know and i have I call it internal internal engineering because that is what it is, but pretty much brick by brick where I had to transform myself from the inside out, from the person I was. But um, I still get this, you know, and I've talked to people and it, it's, it's um, you know, it's kind of that syndrome where soldiers go to war and they have that, you know, the trauma. Because I didn't understand what this was. Really, I thought it was some kind of spiritual war, Raphael going on here right you know with with all the stuff i've been through and i'm really forging to move so much darkness now there's a there's a really unique internal i mean you would know this transformation of of thinking patterns of ways of looking at the world of ways of relating to people of of actually seeing what our values really are and what is really appropriate to us undisturbed by the past or the wrong instructions of the past or the experience of the past, but the more purified form of actually what we are and what our value system and actual beliefs really are, right? But still, there's all this mad stuff, really violent stuff of people I've seen, you know, getting killed in front of me and crazy stuff. But it's post-traumatic stress disorder. I really want, what is this stuff? you know, that comes when I'm playing with my children or when I'm doing wonderful things. What is this fucking stuff, right? You know, and I still get it. I mean, I'm very masterful now at having having the tools for all of this stuff, obviously. But, you know, people tell me, they said, Steve, you know, that's post, you know, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Literally, that is that is that is a form of it. So 
And have you had that addressed? Have you seen had therapy to deal with that? Or are you just dealing with it, internalizing in the same way? And I can imagine because I know exactly what you're talking about in the same way that you had to endure the isolation and, and deal with that, because I know the screws weren't coming in. I know other prisoners weren't coming in and giving you the shoulder that you needed. Um, and you probably didn't want it anyway, because that I hesitate to say is a sign of weakness. I don't think like that. And I'm sure you don't. Um, but 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 that's the term people understand. Um, have you been able to address the sort of post-traumatic stress that you suffered during that that time in prison? I have. I mean, it's it's unique for me because I, you know, I've realised obviously I have such an innate, strong, tenacious spirit that I've overcome. I mean, I've come back same as you, Raphael. Things that people don't come back from. Even one of them things most people don't come back from. So, you know, I'm spiritual, you know, and I'm very guided and I, you know, I'm very humble in the sense I I don't get my head turned and I'm very grounded. I know there's a lot more always going on here than just me. I have a purpose, but so does everyone else. So I'm very mindful to keep keep my boundaries really, really intact in the simple, humble way. This has always worked for me to keep the nonsense away. I mean, you know, a lot of that old life was nonsense. It was being infiltrated by rubbish and unhealthy stuff. I mean, let's face it, you know. And so, you know, after eradicating this, I've had no specialist help where I've gone to a doctor, specialist doctor trained in that saying, this is what we do. But I, you know, I have wonderful Wonderful people in my life are very, very successful coaches, counselors, all kinds of people who I have spent many, many hours going over this stuff with. And that has been very, very valuable um, to me. Just before we talk about the, the transformation, how you came out the other end of this journey, just just before we get, I just want people to understand a little bit more about the fact that, you know, when you're an A man and you're in prison, you can get decategorized. I did. I moved from an A to a B and it made life, I wouldn't say easier because then you do go into the general population and then that starts, doesn't it? All the, the trials and tribulations you have to deal with there. But you've done all your sentence as an A man and you went to some of the worst of the worst prisons. Why was that? I mean, you talked about being, you know, angry and you had a lot to get out of you and most of it manifested itself when you were in prison. But was you, I mean, and you were in there and, and categorised as a dangerous prisoner, but you become an even more dangerous prisoner as a prisoner because of the things that you you did whilst you were in prison. What sort of things did you did to warrant that level of, of description? This is true. I mean, I call it be, being away with the fairies, you know, at that point. I was really gone, you know, as a human being at that point because of what, I, what I'd been through with the crime stuff, the heavy crime stuff and the truth you know it all come to a head and I started to get me- mental health problems you know and I was sectioned at one point but this was you know and that was horrific but you know that was a a pivotal turning point for me even then but look when we're turning when we're talking about the progression in the long-term system I mean look I was really Elite in the sense I was in that small percentage who would do what other people wouldn't do. I mean, you know, they said I tried to smuggle guns in to escape to shoot my way out of prison. That's one thing. Now, when you start that, Raphael, you know yourself. I mean, police even come in to interview me over that. So this is not a fancy notion. Nothing happened. You know, there was, 
you know, a lot of stuff over this. And um, as a cat, you know, your security file is paramount. Mine was like this. There was two of them. God only knows what you would write something. I mean, like this, right? Two of them. One big lump and then another big one they'd put together. And, you know, I mean, I had to defend myself in there. I was informed, uh, involved in gang wars in the sense it was very brutal in them days. The prisoners in many intents and purposes ran the landings. They don't now. You know, you didn't have standard enhanced and all that then. It was a jungle, right? You know, and everyone had big uh, knives and this and that. I, you know, I see a couple of people murdered in front of me real time, right there, you know, stabbed to death. I see unbelievable things. And I was, you know, I was in at the deep end, you know, so I had to defend myself a few times and I was involved in them wars because you get into these cliques, kind of food boats, for protection, you know. So, you know, even if it wasn't you or one of your close friends, these tit-for-tat things go on and this is how it happens. So, of course, you know, and I've, look, you know, I assaulted screws. I was very violent to them. Of course, they don't like that, you know. So they was really at a quandary of what to do with me. I was one of them prisoners that they didn't know what to do with, who they'd really tried to destroy and push and pull but they suddenly realised I was one of the small minority who was a real one. So this is why they, who they couldn't break, who the more that they would hit with the stick was just making it matter. This, so what they do, what they learned to do, this is why I went to Hull, special unit, you know, which was modelled on Barlini, you know, and they gave us more food. I was there with people like Alan Lord, Kevin Brown, uh, uh, John John Murray, you know, you know, there was loads of people there then and, um, you know, we um, they give you everything in a sense. You know, they give you everything, rather than and try to try to do it that way. But of course, that didn't really work either because we were so. Then they built Wood Hill, which was this fifteen million pound uh, close supervision centre. They call it. It's still there today, which was four units on a level system. You behave, they give you more. You don't. You go down, which is a dungeon. I mean, there'd be ten of them opening the door there. Charlie, Charlie Bronson, I think it was the sixth or seventh in the whole system to be selected to go there. I was the next one after Charlie. So this was the kind of way they was looking at me. So it's not, you know, it's not hard to see. I mean, even one of the top, top people from the, from, from the Home Office, from the Cat A Committee, who was the chair of the Cat A Committee, in Dot One it was called then, remember, he came to see me. And he said, look, you know, the way you're going, you know, he said, you'll be staying on it. And that was the last. Um, so there's a lot of intelligence and a lot of stuff they see and a lot of stuff they make up and they put it all together. And uh, it didn't paint a pretty picture at that point, Raphael, did it, really? Do you, do you think? No, it's, 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 it's a terrifying experience. And unless you've lived it, you, you, you can try and artic- articulate as much as you want. But ordinary people just can't get it. I get it to some extent. You, you know, I didn't go to the whole units. I know people that did, including Bronson. But but do you think that the fact you were serving a fixed sentence was your saviour in the sense that if you were a lifer, for example, where the possibility of of release may never have come for you because of the way you were conducting yourself in prison. Do you think the fact you were serving a fixed sentence meant that there was an end in sight? I mean, unless you did something in prison that warranted more time, 
the fixed sentence, did that help you? Or was there more than that conversation you had with with that home office official that, that started to sort of open what may at the beginning never have felt like it was going to be open? That That, I mean, your freedom. Certainly having a fixed sentence was a help, even though it was, you know, I really, I'm telling you, I couldn't see the end of that. I didn't think I was going to get out. I thought I'd be murdered or I'd kill someone. I mean, this is horrendous. But, you know, I mean, I felt that morning, noon and night. I didn't know what I would be after 12 years or 14 years of living like that. I couldn't comprehend that. I had lost everything. I was at the most primitive place of a human being, really, you know. And this really affects you. I mean, God only knows. I had a lot of friends around me who was lifeless. And the ones I was around, they was worse. Some of them killed again because they was really, some of them, they were so, they was, you know, Raphael, they was really, really warped at that point because some of them was never getting out, right? You know, I mean, like you say, you know, you can talk about it all day, but unless you have been through something like that and you're so in such a mindset of that, it's hard to equate it. It really is where you don't think you have anything to live for, where it doesn't matter, where you have no rules, where you're tortured beyond tortured that, you know, you don't understand the normal rules of anything. Never mind. It's, 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 a, it's a crazy place to be. And, you know, certainly that certainly helped because in, in them days for me, I was lucky because how the laws changed. You know, I actually done two-thirds of that sentence, but then they changed again and they let long-termers do half of that sentence. But then they changed again and they brought in the IPP system which means that, you know, they could take people in there for anything, really, if they was a serious career kind of criminal, right? You know, and it could be four years IPP, but they could keep them in there for 20, 30 years, however long they liked. And they do, and they still do. This is not right. This is, is not right. It causes no end of... But this is what you're dealing with, the institution that manages this kind of criminality. When did it change, Stephen? Was it when your sentence came to an end and you came out, or, or was it just before you got out? I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, let's talk about getting out of prison now. You've obviously had a horrendous time in jail, and I thank you for sharing your 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 journey up until the point of transformation. Like you say, you were a primitive prisoner, the worst of the worst in the eyes of the authorities, and you admit yourself. When, when did it change and how did it change? Was it the moment you were freed and you discovered, fell in love or something? What was that moment of, of pivotal change? It, it was a process, you know, it was a process, you know. You know, and the truth is, even after coming out of that big sentence, I was so institutionalised, you know, it'll take you two, three years to get into a sentence like that and it'll take you two, three years to when you come out to get any way kind of normal, really. That's the truth, you know, you know that. So I come out, you know, and I, I I was so involved in this organized crime with, you know, the families, all the rest of it, that I, I, you know, I was on a hiding to nothing. I was in a time warp. You know, I'd lost 12 years of my life. I was completely traumatized, institutionalized. I didn't know anything else. So I was straight into the, you know, melting pot. So 22 months later, I got nicked again with a firearm. Me, you know, and my brother, that was there for protection because I was still involved. And it was getting very, very serious again. 
I got five years, made a cat eye again. They took me off that after a while because, you know, I only ended up with the five years. That was it for me, really. You know, that was it after that time. And um, the truth is, Raphael, I wanted out of that life for a long time. But what I've learned, and I say this, what I learned, this is valuable, is for meaningful change to really occur, really take hold in anything, what we need is we need a lot of elements to come together. We need circumstance. We need, you know, we need courage, sometimes intervention, certainly timing, sometimes absolutely divine timing, you know, uh, opportunity. We need all of these things to come together at the right time. Then we have a chance if we just put our head down and walk in the right direction. This is why for many times it doesn't work for people because they may have a couple of them elements or some of them, but they don't have the whole package and they can't understand why they can't do it. So this is my understanding. And did you bring this together yourself or did all these elements fall into place for you after the five-year sentence so that you could move forward and be the man you are today? Raphael, you know, if you was to say to me, you know, when I was in Durham, Durham, Durham block, for instance, uh, 20 years or whatever, you know, you're going to be this. I would have said, what drugs are you taking? You know, really? I mean, it's just impossible to even think that even a part of that will be true. That is the first thing. So it's a process, but it is about the penny dropping and it is about having Good, good ingredients in there to work with anyway, certainly with me. This is why I say this is important. And then again, timing is important. Rock bottoms are important. Life beating you up is important. Learning, knowledge and maturity are important. You know, seeing through the lies is important. You know, being around the right people, places and things are important. Having enough. And then it's about, you know, I mean, someone said to me once, a really good friend of mine, right, when I went into rehab, and I was broken at this point, Raphael. I went in there. They knew who I was and all this, who was coming. He's still a good, good friend of mine up till now. Unbelievably qualified, right? He said, Stephen, there's only one thing you need to change. I said, what's that? He said, everything. So true. I mean, I had an intellectual understanding of what he meant but I was not anywhere close where I needed to be here emotionally, you know, right here. There was more learning to come, more to be revealed, but I had to change absolutely everything, people, places, and things. A good guide for me at one point was to be the opposite of everything I was, the opposite of what I was thinking, what I was doing, what I was feeling, because that was the right answer. I was so far away from what I needed to be. And how do you do that, though? How do you bring about those changes? I know it starts from within, and then, like you say, all the the, the elements sort of come together at the right time, but you, you've got to grasp them, haven't you? Take that opportunity, you know, meet that right person, everything to fall in, in into place. Um, and you've obviously changed significantly. What, what does second chance mean to you? Does it mean that you were given a second chance, that you took your own second chance, or that the elements came together for you to kind of lead this second Stephen life? The first thing I would say, and I'm very clear on this with all my learnings and experiences, we're absolutely accountable for all our actions. This is what free will is about, you know. My mother has a great way of saying it, as they do in such a simple way. You make your bed, you're laying it. 
but it's just so true. A way of saying it is, look, people ask about success, this success thing. My experience is that most people, bless them, they wait for this big chance, this thing that's going to turn this, this idea that's going to change the whole game. That's rubbish. You know, we create our own realities in our feeling and our thinking and our actions. We are setting up what is to come. When you put consistency to that, now you're really in the game. Believe you me. Anything that you put consistency to and think about constantly and feel and put the actions to, you will arrive there at some point in some way. I promise you. Get your trajectory right. Education in the middle helps here. You know, and a bit of discipline and humility, of course, right? But look, you know, success, for instance, is, you know, because we'll reverse engineer this is a good way of doing it. It's not one good choice. It's not a hundred good choices, not a thousand, it's not twenty thousand. It's uh, it's 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 thousands, sometimes every minute, every hour, every week, every day for years. That's what success is. But it's the consistency of that. If you do that the other way, then it's obvious what's gonna happen. We are in control of that. Now, this is where timing is important. Because there are other elements here. What about the guy who, you know, the woman, bless her, who's really traumatized by actions outside her control? What about the person who's so poor or has no opportunities he can't even feed himself? Where does he go? It's very simple. A step at a time, the same way we all do and everyone does. And remember, baby steps turn into big strides. The important thing that I learned is that we go in the right direction. Even if we don't know what that is, and we always do the right thing, and that we never just stop, that we continuously take even little baby steps that we know that we're going in the right direction, because that's how we form new behaviours, and we turn this into great strides. It's so interesting, because as you're talking, your words are wise, and I just can't help thinking you know, having known the world very well, is the temptation, the temptation to go off the path because it's the easy thing. You have the, let's say, criminal mentality and the easy thing is this temptation. And and even when you're leading a law-abiding life in like you, you're a successful entrepreneur, businessman, um, award winner, the temptation to do something to cut a corner, and I mean, and when I say cut corner, business is different as an entrepreneur, but with someone who has the criminal mindset that you did for so many years and still have, you can't deny that it's still within you, even if you control it to the best of your ability. How do you avoid that that moment of temptation, even if it's just to sort of pick up something that doesn't belong to you, but it doesn't really belong to anybody else? Do you just say, no, I'm not going to do that because if I did that, it would go against everything that I represent today. It's the drivers in us that really, the natures, if you want to call it. This is closely aligned to our natures, but it's a real do or die stuff. And for me, when I come to the point, the line in the sand for me was that I had come to a point where I could not hurt anyone else around me, especially my family or myself. I couldn't do it. I didn't have it in me. Also, another thing that was there at that time, very specifically, was I wasn't prepared to put up with that miserable. I felt, as a human being, about everything when I knew there was so much more. Now, the, And I was worth so much more. you know. And the other point was I wasn't prepared to put up with people 
looking down their nose at me or these slight little pokes or whatever they would say, thinking they was better than me when I knew that they wasn't. And this can even be family. Sometimes our closest are the worst. I mean, this is life. But when I really got that internally, this given me such a driver even now that I will not be beaten. It drives me forward that this is just something I will not put up with. But herein lies a really clever strategy because it's about we can manoeuvre ourselves into these positions. And this is one of the things that I do as superimposing and overcoming stuff, knowing that this works for me as a real innate engineering tool. I always start with the end in mind, and I will position myself in positions. It's like it's like the general who has an army. They come onto the beach with the boat to conquer this new unknown land. The first order he gives is burn the boat. What? Burn the boat? Absolutely, because now there's no way back. Now we've got that out of the way. That's really good for us because the only way is forward. That's positioning yourself into a position where you have to do stuff. It's one of my tricks. It's worth mentioning because when people really struggle with this stuff, this stuff works. Believe you me. There are other things you can do to make yourself do the right stuff. And sometimes we need to do that, especially when we're at the start of a transformation and we may be kind of weaker in uh, not, not formed and so cohesively and congruently formed in what we are becoming. I'm sure that will inspire a lot of people. What does final question for me, um, fascinating listening to you um, and the insight, what, what does the future hold? I know you've got your book, A Monkey Puzzle, brilliant title, and I know it's something to do with a tree that was local to you when you were growing up. So, you know, people can read your book and find out in much more detail who, who you are and what you're about. Uh, but what else does the future hold for you? I mean, I know you've got lots of fingers in lots of pies, legal ones, I should ha- add. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm too old and too developed, you know, and too sorry, you know, and too embarrassed and too all of these things to, to go backwards in my life now. You know, I'll go out on my feet. It's as simple as that. That's very valuable for me, by the way, after it all, really, you know. But look, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, nothing lasts forever anyway. But at least we keep our dignity and our value and no one can't say that we didn't try. That's very, very valuable, you know, to me and a very simple. I wouldn't give that for any money, you know, just telling you. And look, you know, it's it's elevating as a human being and, you know, I have children and all that and I – you know, it's wonderful to be a father and, you know, to be, uh, you know, to feel and know I'm a person I can be proud of certainly today and like and, you know, all of this stuff. That, that you know, that's wonderful. That That's very valuable. It's the most valuable stuff to me. It's not the money and this and that. I mean, this comes and this goes. You know, I'm very, I'm very happy and privileged to know that these are not my main drivers. Building cool, great stuff and achievement is great for me and, and, um, the monkey puzzle tree, the book, it's a, it's very successful at the moment. It's, you know, it's going to be a film, as you know, a major film that's going really well. We have the script and um, we're doing very well with our business stuff. And of course we, we build brands and, you know, we do marketing. We're very bespoke and skilled in PR and design and uh, building national global brands. This is what we do. We love what we do. It's very creative and another wonderful initiative 
which is going to come out when the world kind of calms down for all of us, hopefully, you know, and we navigate these present times, Raphael, is, 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 is the Stephen Gillen Foundation. I won't go into that too much because I like to do and not talk too much. I like to save the energy for the doing, but there's so much stuff out there about it already. And it's going to be a wonderful privilege to be able to be a person who can have a go at doing this kind of stuff. So that that that's basically it for me. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks so much for sharing your story. Um, h- how can people um, find out more? You've got a website um, or, or are you on Instagram, social media? I mean, do you want people to sort of look you up, see what you're about now as opposed to what you were like in the past? Because people can do that, can't they? They can look up, oh, I want to look at the sort of the old Stephen, but it's the new Stephen that's more important. Yeah. Look, look, this, this is valuable because it's all there. I mean, you get it with me. I'm an all-in kind of guy. I don't skirt around the issue or anything like this. I think it's really important, the truth and the authenticity where we, we learn so we can do better. You know, I mean, you Google my name, this Stephen with a PH, you know, it's everywhere, and YouTube, online, Instagram, Facebook. But, look, you know, I, my personal global brand is www. Stephen with a P-H, Gillen, G-I-L-L-E-N dot com. There's loads of stuff in there. I, we do trainings. There's lots of free free content in there. They can get a signed author's limited, limited edition copy of the book. And it's worth having a look in there. And there's a lot of stuff. And, you know, I invite people to, you know, to go in and have a look, make their own mind up you know, about what they think. And, you know, our thing is to help people in, you know, even if it's a little small way. And we are doing that to so many people. You know that, Raphael. It's a real privilege. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story, Stephen. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Raphael. Thank you. I wonder what you made of Stephen's story. He's certainly seen and done things that have shaped his tone and experiences. Well, I hope you will follow and subscribe to the podcast. It really will help keep the podcast going and please share on social media. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. All the links are in the description. This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And I'm your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.